Hi, and welcome to episode 35 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Kalmer, and tonight I'm just joined by Kevin. How's Kevin? Hey, Kenneth. How's it going? Good things, good things. And tonight we are going to unpack a recent move of a production system Kevin helped handle from Amazon, well, I guess Amazon proxy, <laughs> to uh, Google's container engine. So it's a, a bunch of exciting stuff to cover, a bunch of technology we both love, a bunch of stuff we've been playing with, and actually having it in production. And that kind of seeds up some nice uh, real-life stories for people that get excited about this stuff. So Kevin, maybe as a little bit of a backstory, let's... Uh, where did this app start out at? Where, where was its old home before the weekend? So before the weekend, its old home was uh, on Amazon EC2. Uh, it was hosted through Engine Yard as a uh, proxy. So Engine Yard is kind of a platform as a service that runs on top of uh, Amazon and a few other cloud providers, uh, which makes it really easy to handle uh, Ruby and PHP and I think Node.js applications as well now. Uh, but yeah, we decided that uh, it was time for a new home that opened up some more flexibility and more options of uh, ways of deploying and uh, opened routes to better reliability. So we started investigating some other options and eventually settled on Google Container Engine. Were there any other uh, close runners to Google Container Engine that you found while looking around? <laughs> there were a few that we considered. Um, I mean, Engine Yard has its own container offering now with uh, that's based on the DS product. Um, we also looked at Amazon's ECS, uh, the Elastic Container um, Solution. can't remember exactly what that stands for now. Uh, Elastic Container Service. Um, yes. And then kind of settled on Google with Container Engine he heavily because it's based on Kubernetes. Uh, and Kubernetes is an open source project. So it is theoretically portable between different cloud providers. Um, so even though we may be using Google's container engine for our specific app, um, in future, we could quite easily pick it up and drop it onto another cloud. How difficult do you think that would be if you just have to speculate? Because I mean, you've done the hard work now. Yeah. Um, the only part that we didn't really deal with... Okay, so Google Container Engine uh, provides us with hosted Kubernetes over a VM cluster running on Google uh, in Google's data center. Um, so if we had to pick this up and drop it on another cloud, so if we were to move back to Amazon or move on to Rackspace or one of those, um, we would have to set up the Kubernetes master uh, and we'd also have to set up a private Docker registry, both of which are provided... Uh, out of the box when you sign up for Google Cloud Platform and Container Engine. Okay, so they actually provide like a very small part of an otherwise standard product that people can just take anyway. Yeah, and it's all just um, a hosted version of the open source product. It's not like it's a specialized version that uh, that we're getting there. That's fantastic. So, I mean, I, I jumped in a bit there with a few leading stuff, but let's, let's explain for the audience like so so what is kubernetes what's it all about what's the ideas around it like just at a high level and we can start drilling down as we carry on okay well that i mean that's very broad uh, and i think that you may also it is very broad. fill in some of the blanks here so um kubernetes at a high level is a platform for orchestrating containers across a cluster of virtual machines in essence, it takes a cluster of VMs, um, one or more, um, and gives you an abstraction over them that you can deploy containers to. And it then is responsible for figuring out where to allocate these resources. So at, at the Kubernetes level, you're really just seeing one massive computer that perhaps has eight cores and 24 gigs RAM or something like that. That's actually made up of separate VMs underneath it. But you don't need to worry about the underlying details of where these things are actually provisioned. You just are able to tell Kubernetes uh, to go and deploy these containers, and that could be Docker containers, Rocket containers, any of those. Um, you can just tell it to go and deploy these into that cluster, and it then handles the deployment and lifecycle management health checks and things like that over those containers. 
Do you have any kind of control on how dense you want those containers deployed? So, I mean, resource scheduling is no small task, and it's fantastic. Like Kubernetes or the Kubelet, the master takes care of it. And there's huge other projects in the space like the Mesosphere and some other services out of Apache. But I mean, so I guess my question is, can you prevent a super expensive batch reporting job from running on the same server that's running your Docker container for your snappy front end service? Yes. So you're able to set resource quotas on at a container level or rather at a pod level. Um, Kubernetes has abstractions over containers called pods and a pod is your base unit of deployment in Kubernetes. Um, and a pod could have one or more containers inside it. You would define resource quotas on a pod, um, and that then, uh, that can then, uh, set limits on that, that would in essence then set limits on how many, um, instances of a certain pod could be deployed on a given host. And pod affinity and anti affinity. Do you know if it's got that kind of capabilities? Uh, I haven't gotten to that. I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, that's cool. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a big project. I just had something we've seen in the past deploying with CoreOS as we try and balance out that you know, like all the pods of the same type don't end up running on the same machine accidentally. Yeah, it, it's possible that pods can end up running on the same machine, um, but in general, what I have seen is that it it does layer it over um, multiple VMs. So if you want four instances of the same uh, type of uh, pod. That would, and you've got four VMs, it would then go and put one on each. That is really awesome. I guess um, something we could have covered a bit earlier now is, is this idea of the sacrificial architecture. Yes. Was that uh, Martin Fowler that coined that term, or was it Chad Fowler? Oh, I'm not actually sure. I, 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 I'm, I'm sure Martin Fowler has an article about it, uh, whether he coined the term or not, it's another matter. Uh, but that is a fascinating idea. Like, tell us a bit about what that is and, and how that plays in with this Kubernetes, Google-style thinking of software deployments. I absolutely love it. Yeah. I want to hear it in your words. Yeah, so sacrificial architecture, um, at first glance, sounds mad. Uh, but it's something that I think was very heavily promoted by the guys at Netflix, uh, especially with Chaos Monkey uh, and Latency Monkey uh, uh, in, in their tooling. The idea is that you should be able to stop any box or literally delete any box in your hardware at any given time and not lose any data or uptime. Um, and in order to do that, you need self-healing systems, uh, systems that are able to um, look at or inspect themselves and make, make sure that they stay in a healthy state, uh, restart things that have, that have fallen over, um, and also need to make careful decisions about how you are handling state, because if your database server gets shot in the head, uh, you don't want to lose any data, but you want that to be able to fail over to a, to another database box. Uh, but when a new VM comes up, you may not have the disk available to you anymore. So it, com it comes to some careful planning about um, persistence of state as well. Now, the, so the idea of sacrificial architecture really means that Right now, if any one of our VMs um, running Resource Guru were to be shut down, uh, we would have very limited downtime. In fact, we should not have any downtime. Because Google will just rebalance the running pods to the different machines and then bring up a new one in the meantime. Yeah, so if our Nginx server um, dies, it will then see that uh, the, the one pod or that the the VM that was running that pod uh, is now unavailable. It will rebalance um, incoming connections to another pod of Nginx that's running on another machine that it would have distributed um, and then see that it now is down by one instance of Nginx and it needs to bring another one up. So it will always maintain at least two instances of Nginx within the cluster. Yeah, that's really, really neat. Yeah, th there was a fantastic demo um I think it was at a developer group in Morocco somewhere where uh, this guy had a cluster of Raspberry Pis running uh, Kubernetes. One, it was five Raspberry Pis, so four nodes and one master. And 
he just had guys come up to the bo- uh, to the cluster and pull a wire out and just watch how things rebalanced and how services just stayed available and things like that. That is such a good example. We need to find a video for the show notes. Yeah, I'll find that. We'll get that in the notes. Now, th- I mean, that was the one thing that really sold it to me was just seeing like they're pulling wires out and these things are still working. It's kind of like that ZFS file system demo where the guy hits the hard drive on stage with a hammer while he's busy doing some kind of right benchmark <laughs> or some system that basically knocks the drive out on stage. I mean, with a hammer, <clears throat> drives that and you can see like this little slowdown as the drives rebalance and then carries on and all the data is safe. Yeah, that kind of practical example just sells, right? <laughs> Indeed. But Kubernetes definitely has earned it at that level. So Kubernetes is uh, is an open source project written by Google, uh, written in Go, which I know we both love. Then, uh, but it's the evolution of the internal tool called Borg, which is what they use to con- uh, to manage their container deployments internally of Google.com and Gmail, Hangouts, any of those tools. Uh, so it's Kubernetes really is a, just an evolution in that same vein of thought and thinking. Yeah, they've been using Borg. If I've got it right, internally for ten years, nearly. yeah, it's something like that. I was chatting to an engineer at Google when we mo- when we were moving this over to um, to the Google Cloud platform, uh, and he specifically said, "Yeah, they've been running containers. Uh, I mean, things like LMTTFY uh, have been around around the block, and they've been running containers for over ten years now." Yeah, when it was just oh, no, it eludes me. What's the underlying LXC? I wanted to ask, I mean, I kind of have a rough idea of the application you guys migrated, but um, maybe just to show that it's non-trivial, unpack all the kind of components that you guys had to move across from Engine Yard or from AWS and a vanilla Linux setup and to the Google side and what pieces were missing that you needed to deploy for yourself that maybe on Amazon side you could rely on third-party providers and you guys decided to take that over for yourself. Sure. Okay. They, I mean, there are quite a few things that we had to move, and I mean, the app is not trivial. It's a Rails app, but we've got a lot of kind of third-party dependencies or external database dependencies and so on. So, uh, things we had to move right off the bat that I'm, I think of is uh, we relied heavily on Engineer's platform, which gave us HA Proxy and Nginx uh, on um, on Gen two Linux. Now. Gen2 is not the friendliest Linux distribution to uh, to work with. John Anderson, if you're listening. Um, but <laughs> moving across, we uh, we were switching from Gen2 onto Debian. Um, we were we had to package our app into a Docker container. Uh, we had to migrate services, so we were using um, Redis. Through an external provider before we were using Open Redis and we, we wanted to drop that and, um, get that internal to our own infrastructure, have control over that. Uh, what else? Uh, yeah, then it was, then it was primarily, okay, uh, the database itself, uh, we could move across. So Google is, uh, Google has Google Cloud SQL as a service which is effectively um, a managed hosted MySQL solution, which is very nice to work with. So we were able to drop straight into that, uh, which made that setup quite a bit easier uh, and, and also gave us a bit more confidence knowing that it's backed by the, it's backed by Google's uh, management and comes with SLAs and things. Were you guys using RDS before or was the MySQL running locally on the boxes? No, it was running locally on a box. Uh, it was part of Engineer's Chef recipes. So that brings up another point: is that Engineer's uh, whole setup was done using Chef. Um, and I know we spoke about Chef uh, a few episodes ago with uh, with Andre and Gabriel, but um, and it, and it worked to great effect uh, on those boxes. Uh, but all of that needed to then be migrated over into a containerized environment. Oh, so a lot of nuts and bolts changes. Yeah. yeah. But all in all, it was it wasn't a difficult thing to move. Um, once we had the app set up in a containerized format, and that required a few code changes to read things out of um, 
environment variables instead of config files and so on. Uh, but once we had made the move to just set the, set up a Docker a Docker container for the app, uh, once we had that running, it was actually fairly easy to get to understand uh, Kubernetes's internals. And Google's got some excellent documentation on Google Cloud Platform on how to get set up with with the basic app. I actually followed the um, Node.js tutorial and just substituted Node for Ruby in the container, and that pretty much just worked from there. I was going to ask, that's probably very similar to the 12-factor chat we had with Ben Yannicka and the whole Polybay.js. Yeah. I mean, if it will run on Heroku, if it's a 12-factor app, you can containerize it and get it running in GCE fairly easily. Yeah, very easily from there. Um, and Kubernetes has... Uh, has a system for handling secrets. So uh, you're able to set environment variables uh, inside uh, inside your Kubernetes setups and uh, mount files from secret files uh, held inside Kubernetes. So it, it, it's really well set up for that. And I think one of the in one of the next versions they're going to bring out um, setting environment variables directly from uh, from Kubernetes secrets. At the moment, we're uh, just creating a shell script that we source before we execute a command. Um, but uh, I believe that moving it into environment variables directly through Kubernetes is coming soon as well. That's really nice. Yeah. One thing I saw you mention in the notes we shared beforehand was that the ease of adding other services, say like StatsD, to get some insight into your running containers. And... It just occurred to me that's a great use of uh, a pod with multiple containers running. You've got your main application in one container. You've got StatsD running in another container, but you wrap them up in this pod, and those two containers will travel out throughout the network and stick together, and you always have that reliable reporting. Is it as easy as they advertised on the box? Um, We took a different approach that I think is even easier than that. Oh, wow. um, we deployed StatsD as a separate pod uh, inside our cluster. Uh, but then one of the things that Kubernetes gives you is uh, internal cluster DNS. So we could set up a, um, a service called StatsD that just uh, will resolve to that StatsD container, wherever it may be, on whichever box it may be, uh, and then just exposes po- port 8125 on UDP. Uh, and then from all of our other pods, we just do a DNS lookup for StatsD and just connect to that. So given that it's UDP um, and you know there's no acknowledgement of packets going back down the wire and things, you, you're you not going to take your app down by uh, if that service happens to not be there. But then we're able to have one StatsD agent uh, running inside the cluster that can aggregate from everything. And that, that worked really nicely as well. But just getting it running was also really nice because we could just drop in, um, we're using dog, uh, Datadog for that. So just brought in Datadog's daemon uh, that includes a StatsD host into it. And just it, it was literally just adding one YAML file to the configuration that um, that brought in the Docker image from Datadog and just ran it, well, started it up. And we could then start pointing UDP packets at it. That is really convenient. Yeah, now to, to do that in a, um, an environment that maybe is Chef-based, uh, which we had before, would have been quite a few extra steps involved. It does feel like that. It's kind of what I like about this Kubernetes style setup and the sacrificial architecture. You've got the container in the isolation. You throw it into the cluster. You play with the service. It doesn't work. You simply delete it and it's gone. Yeah. And leaves, leaves no footprints on your system. Yeah. And another thing that's really useful inside, um, inside this is namespaces. So we've got one set of VMs that are, that we can use to run um, our staging and production environments. We don't need to separate those out. But internally, the services are in different Kubernetes namespaces, and the namespaces are then, well, the namespace acts as kind of a resolution boundary on DNS. So if I'm looking for statsd inside my um, staging environment, I'll get to the statsd container deployed into that staging namespace. Uh, if I look for it from a production uh, container, I'll then resolve to the container that running StatsD in that production namespace. Uh, and that's extremely useful. The other thing that it's, uh, that it's great at is the networking. Normally, if you didn't have a Kubernetes uh, setup or uh, 
I know that there are some others like this, Docker Swarm and uh, Mesos now as well that uh, that do similar things. But if you didn't have those, uh, you would have to do a few extra tricks around networking. Now, what what we got with uh, Kubernetes here is that our um, well, every container gets its own IP address inside a inside the Kubernetes cluster, and that means that we don't get port conflicts. So all of our backend services can run on the same port number. Uh, we don't have to try and increment and find an available port somewhere on the on the underlying VM that it's running on. Uh, and then Kubernetes services will then give you a load balanced port that will then connect to those containers. And that then just does a round robin across those containers. Before we go down services <laughs> too far, because <laughs> that's also a really interesting thing that I'd like to, to unpack a bit. The namespaces, is it possible to deploy something in a namespace and reach across another namespace if you know about it? Yes. I'm just thinking... Yeah, but you need to have the fu the fully qualified name for it then. So uh, that would then be... So it would be statsd.production.svg.svc.cluster or something along those lines. Um, so you can reach across it, but you need to have a fully qualified name for it then. If you don't give it the fully qualified name, you just reach into the um, the the container in the same namespace. Okay, I was just thinking if you want to deploy like a monitoring system that inverts the whole model and reaches out and pulls the network as opposed to receiving push metrics, um, then you, do you want to deploy one or two or get one bird's eye view of your system? That's why I asked. So, hmm. but... <clears throat> well, well that, that's an interesting new feature that's coming in now with uh, Kubernetes 1.2. Uh, it's an experimental feature on one one, which uh, you don't have access to if you're using the Google tools yet, but it it should be out soon. Uh, called daemon sets, so you can set um, you can set pods to be deployed onto um, as daemons that then will be guaranteed to run on the actual underlying VMs. So if you've got four VMs, you can get it to run that uh, you will have one per VM as a guaranteed. Uh, underlying, uh, I think that's affinity. Yes, yeah, VM affinity. Okay, that's yeah. So, so daemon sets uh, get you to that. Uh, but that's uh, that's an experimental feature that's only landed now with uh, Kubernetes one point two, which has only been released about a week ago. Not even. Yeah, not even. KubeCon was on the same days as ScaleConf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, as for the monitoring, that can then reach out across. Uh, across the network, yeah, uh, that would be possible. And you could probably get it to um, reach into uh, the kubectl command to, to actually go and get a list of the pods um, and just introspect on your uh, on your Kubernetes cluster and then go and reach into those. Yeah, or just use the Kubernetes API, which yeah. is the same thing used by the kubectl. Yeah. Um, so the, the services, this is really interesting feature of Kubernetes. It took me a bit to wrap my head around it. And I, I think it's worth unpacking it a bit or just exploring it a bit so that listeners could understand what they are, kind of what they do, how important they are when you want to deploy stuff at scale uh, with containers in Kubernetes. Hmm. So maybe as a first shot, let's unpack a normal, um, an internal service that you would deploy and what you would, why you would, deploy a service and what's behind the service and what's in front of the service. So who consumes it and where does it get its resources from? Okay, so at a very abstract level, and this, uh, this, I'll probably need to go into a bit of detail before this really makes sense, but a service gives you um, a known DNS uh, entry, a DNS host name that will resolve to containers that are matched by a given label. So, so let's start there at pods. When you set up a pod, you can give it a label. So I can label my pod with the, the uh, key. Uh, labels are just key values. So I can have app as Rails app, something like that. And I can give it version v2, something along those lines. Um, and then I can have a service that resolves to containers that match that label. So let, let's perhaps take Redis as an example for this one. 
Uh, I've got a Redis service that uh, has um, the label uh, app Redis master, something like that. And then I want to uh, be able to be able to reach that Redis master uh, from somewhere else in the cluster. Now, because every time you deploy a container, it gets a new IP address, you can't rely on a static IP address configuration to go and find these things. and especially if you've got multiple uh, containers up and you want to load balance between them, uh, you need to have some common port that you can connect through. And that's where services come in. So in order to then connect to that Redis service, you then want to create a... Oh, sorry, go back a step. In order to connect to the Redis containers, you want to go through a service that will then open port 6379 TCP to containers that match that label app Redis master. So when I then do a DNS query for for the host name Redis, it will give me an IP address from inside Kubernetes that matches up to um, the Kubernetes service that will then proc more load balance to containers that match that label. Now there can be any one uh, any number of containers that match that label Redis. Um, I can have five, I can have one, I can have zero. But that that service gives me a common place that everything else in the app can look at to, uh, to go and find it. And then one of the nice things there is you can scale those backends for the service up and down as you need it. So yes. let's say it's not Redis, but it's some microservice that you have that talks to some, I don't know, to something. Well, well, <laughs> and let, it, let's take Rails. You can just scale that out. Yeah, or Rails, or background workers. No, let's just take our, our yeah, our, just our Rails web servers. So we've got a cluster of um, a cluster of Rails containers or Rails pods, I should say, that each run a container that just fires up Puma, um, and then there's a service uh, called Rails that will do a load balanced round robin to each of those containers. Uh, and so Nginx is then doing a reverse proxy onto a load balanced port when it goes to Rails app. And that's where I mean, that can, from that side on you, then handle your SSL termination and things like that. Um, but connecting into the actual Rails instance itself is handled by going through the service. And the load balancing is then handled internally by Kubernetes. So the load balancer in the services, is it like a fancy layer seven load balancer or does it sit way down low in the stack, in the OSI stack? No, it's very rudimentary. It sits there as a layer three uh, load balancer. So it's not going to do anything like um, SSL termination and uh, adding headers or anything like that. It's just going to literally pass packets. Okay, so the, I just ask because if you want something more advanced, then you'll bring in your layer seven load balancer that can actually unpack the protocols and pass it around. Yeah, and there is a something that's been brought into. I think it's in Kubernetes one two. I'm not sure if it's a beta feature now or not, uh, but uh, ingresses where you will be able to handle things like HTTP S, um, you know, the SSL termination. Uh, inside uh, the Kubernetes load balances, but it's it, it's not in the stable at the moment that I know of. Yeah, I would, it's a tricky problem to solve for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's not a problem that really needs to be solved right now at that level. And I think if the tool was there, I would have used it. But uh, to just terminate SSL with Nginx, everyone's doing it anyway. Uh, it, it wasn't a problem. And I don't know if you guys have the opportunity to use it, or maybe it's use it to get to Google Cloud SQL is the the external services that Kubernetes offers. There's this feature where you can deploy, I think it's exactly what it looks like a service, except the backing part is external to your cluster. So if you connect to old legacy systems back in your own data center, you would all your internal pods would connect to a service that then points outside. So it just flips the whole model uh, on its head. But it's an interesting feature nonetheless. 
So another thing, that's how you possibly connect to Google's Cloud SQL. You're not connecting directly to it. You connect to the service deployed in your cluster, and it will handle all the backends and changes for you. Now, if if there is some uh, some way of doing that, I'm not aware of it at the moment. Um, so connecting across to Google Cloud SQL, um, well, Cloud SQL gives you an IP address, and uh, internal to the cloud, you, you you've got pretty good access control that you can restrict the IP addresses and networks that are actually able to access uh, access your database. So there's no external ingress to our uh, to our MySQL database from outside of our specific uh, VM cluster. And that's the way we like it. Yeah. Uh, you lock these things down as well as you can. Yeah, definitely. One thing we haven't talked about just yet is replication controllers and what they offer you in terms of simplifying deployments and keeping services up. Yeah, okay. So with replication controllers, remember that I said your base unit of um, deployment in Kubernetes is a pod. So replication controllers are then there to ensure that a given number of replicas of that pod are deployed in your cluster. So we have Rails, and uh, let's say we want to have four or five, let, let's take a number five replicas of Rails running in our cluster. Uh, the approach to that is to set up the Rails pod and then bind it to a replication controller, and the replication controller then uh, determines how many instances of this run in our cluster. It also is responsible for health monitoring and you know, checking that the thing is actually alive. Uh, and then you can do some interesting gymnastics with it in terms of uh, deploying, you know, blue-green deploys and things like that. We haven't got down that path yet, but it, it, its base function is to handle the replication of a given pod across your cluster. And those you can also dynamically change as you need, yeah. just like anything else. Yeah, so you can use the Kubernetes API or the kubectl command is what I've just been using. Uh, but you just run a command and point it to a replication controller, tell it to scale it, and give it a number of re- replicas, and it will then um, scale up and down. So perhaps this is a good time to just do a little segue into the, the health monitoring inside Kubernetes. So... The way that it works is effectively on a um, a loop, just as a health check loop, that it checks is um, is the cluster in the configured state, yes or no. Yes, it is, do nothing. No, it isn't, then determine what actions need to be performed to get it back to its configured state. So if the replication controller says that we should have five instances of a pod uh, and we currently have four, uh, it then figures that, okay, we need to fire up one more instance of it. Likewise, if we have five and we want to scale it down to four, the replication controller can then, well, the, the health check will then see, okay, we need to reduce that by one replica and scale it down accordingly. The, the whole model is compare your current state against your configured state and then determine which steps need to be taken to reach the configured state. And that's in idempotent. And that, that's how the health checks run internally. So it's almost exactly the same idea behind Chef or yeah. Ansible, these provisioning tools, except the only unit of operation here is now a pod and then pods and their dependencies. Yeah, well, pods, services, all of your kind of primitives that you can configure. And it then just does a health check to figure out what actions need to be taken uh, to bring the cluster into unison with the configured state. Are you guys using persistent volumes in Kubernetes at all? Uh, yeah. So one thing we, we spoke about with sacrificial architecture is making sure that uh, you manage states correctly. Uh, yes. If, so Redis, for example, runs in memory. Uh, if our Redis um, instance dies, for whatever reason, we don't want to lose all of our data in there because we've got important stuff in there. So what we've done with that is um, we've got a persistent Redis setup that uh, just uh, files everything off to the um, to a persistent disk help, uh, run by Google Storage. Uh, and with Kubernetes, at least with Google Cloud, you can just mount those persistent volumes straight into your 
uh, into your container. Now the default Redis image that comes from um, from Docker Hub from their public rep- uh, public registry will automatically just store into into whatever's in slash data. So we just mount a disk onto slash data and we've got a persistent Redis store. And this volume will follow your Redis container along as it moves from virtual machine to virtual machine. Yeah, so it's actually uh, declared as part of the pod, the Redis pod. Uh, whenever that Redis pod is um, is deployed, the disk will be attached with it. So I guess it goes without saying that the disk can't live anywhere in your Kubernetes cluster. It needs to, needs to be provided to you by some block store like Google's, uh, what's it called, Cloud Drive, or Amazon's EBS volumes, or an NFS server, or Safe, or something. Yeah, so when you're working inside Google Cloud, there is a specific um, Google Cloud storage uh, part of the cloud offering, uh, which is very different from Google Cloud Drive. Um, or Google Drive. It's just, uh, so it's their block storage where you just provision a disk and you can mount it into VMs. So one of the things that, that we ran into was, uh, we were using uh, an external Redis provider, a third party service Redis provider that only allowed ingress from inside EC2. Now they had a, um, a proxy listed in the documentation that if you wanted to connect from outside of EC2, you can use a given address um, with a limit of 10 gigabytes data transfer uh, per month, which we thought, okay, well, that's fine for just doing our replication and uh, moving over. Problem is that when we came to actually moving this thing, it didn't work. We just couldn't connect to it. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, no. so we had to make some extra plans around that. Uh, ended up firing up another volume, uh, another... Uh, VM on EC2, installing Redis on that, rep- doing a master-slave replication from our um, from our external Redis onto that EC2 instance, um, grabbing the dump.rdb file from that and SCPing that into a, uh, onto the drive in Google, and then firing up Redis on Google from that side. But you know, all the best plans. <laughs> First contact with the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's just, I was, it's a pretty neat feature in Kubernetes. And I know it's, it's not a silver bullet. In Slack, I've seen in some folks mention that it can get very, very slow. I guess the larger your volumes are. Um, but it, it's just like the persistence dance with Docker containers. Like no matter how hard you fight it, eventually you're going to find a container that just needs some form of persistence. And this is such a nice feature they offer. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to worry about, um, whether the thing is backed up or redundancy of, of storage and things like that. They handle all of the logistics of that and uh, making sure that that disk is available regardless of you know, where you are. But it's still your responsibility if you delete your data on that disk. Yeah, if I if I go and delete data off that disk, well, I could restore it from a snapshot that we run. Uh, but the disk itself, uh, if you delete data, it's... it's the same as deleting data off your own disk. Oh, no. So <clears throat> maybe as like kind of a closing scenario, how do you go about deploying code into this container world? So, I mean, just to, to step back, like we've covered plenty of things here, but we now have like an engine X or an HA proxy that can front traffic and do SSL offloading and it sends it to a service that's deployed in this cluster and then this service delegates all this work to a bunch of pods that are now running uh, accepting traffic and doing their work like how do you cycle that out smoothly like what's the steps i mean this is not just ftping files anymore or running (laughs) a simple cap deploy or an ansible deploy there's got to be a whole different mechanic here for cycling out old code and getting new code live yeah it's a very different mechanic but i think it's a very elegant so, and it comes back down to the replication controllers. Now, the first thing is that Docker images can get very big. Uh, if, if you're installing all of your gem dependencies in Ruby, um, you're installing, uh, external dependencies such as if you need Node.js runtimes, the Ruby runtime, all of that available. Those images can get rather big. Uh, so if you're on an ADSL line with a 512k upload, you're going to suffer. So first thing is get hold of a VM somewhere 
that has a decent internet connection, preferably in the same uh, in the same data center as the cluster you want to deploy to. So that, that that's step number one, ground rules. Um, but once you've got that, you've got a VM that you can um, set up a deploy key to your GitHub repo so that you've got read-only access to your code base. Uh, install Docker on that VM. Um, I, I just use Debian Linux because it's pretty ubiquitous. Everything just works. Get, so you get Docker running on that VM. You get your code on that VM. Build the Docker image there. And then push that that new Docker image to your container registry, which is provided uh, on, on container engines provided by Google. Uh, if you're building your own Kubernetes cluster, you're going to need to host your own uh, repository somewhere. Uh, and, and and that is fairly easy to get set up. You can there's a Docker image for it. So once you've got the Docker image pushed, uh, and what we do is tag our Docker image with the Git SHA of the Git commit um, that we're bundling or that we're containerizing. You then go over to Kubernetes and uh, update the replication controller pod with the new image. So the pod itself needs to get update or needs to be redeployed with a new image. Now the kubectl command has uh, an option called rolling update. And what that'll do is bring in a new container uh, with a new image and then roll out a container with the old image uh, incrementally. So you've got zero downtime while you're doing the deploy. Then, so what, what we really just do is kubectl rolling update pointed to our Rails uh, replication controller and our background queue replication controllers and all of those and tell it to do a rolling update with the new image. And it then just goes and cycles the pods out. But does it have any fancy heuristics to know when a pod's ready to accept new traffic? Or yeah. is it just, okay, please tell me how. Yeah, so one of the things, there are two options you can set when you're declaring a pod. One is readiness check, the other is liveness check. Um, so if you only set a readiness check, uh, it only will run until until that returns in traffic. A liveness check will continue to run and make sure that the pod is healthy. Uh, so generally, we use a, a liveness check just on uh, on an HTTP endpoint. You can use a shell script or an HTTP endpoint to determine liveness. And once that uh, pod is returning on that liveness check, then it will start accepting traffic. Okay, that's really neat. So if you're deploying... Uh, let's say something like the JVM, which is a bit slower at startup, but you don't necessarily want to accept the traffic immediately. You first want to like warm it up a bit. Then you could have your readiness check defer until you think your VM's been sufficiently warmed up. Yeah, you and can then... set an, there's, there's a key that you set in the YAML file, uh, just uh, initial delay or initial, yeah, initial delay. Uh, so you can put say a 20 second delay on while you wait for everything to to fire up and caches to warm up, whatever it may be, uh, before it starts accepting traffic. Oh, this thing is absolutely amazing. It, it, it's incredible. Um, so I was watching graphs in New Relic while we were doing a deploy. And the thing was the app was serving, well, it was around about 1,500 requests per minute. Um, we hit the deploy and I didn't see any jump in request queue time or request uh, wait times. It, it, it just carried on smoothly as though nothing happened. A user did not feel the difference. But at one point, they were connecting onto the old pods, and the next moment, they were on the new pods. Oh, that is so freeing. I must say, people have, um, I mean, this is now completely anecdotal. I've just seen good praise for the performance of uh, the Google Cloud stuff. Uh, tra- I know Travis CI moved. Uh, I think it's by now complete, but they've basically moved all the infrastructure over to building on, I don't know if it's Google Container Engine, or but on the Google Cloud, nonetheless. And it's, it seems those things are really, really snappy. Yeah, I've noticed Travis has become really quickly uh, lately, uh, as an aside, uh, that if you set uh, sudo false in your Travis YAML, that it fires up inside a container and your um, startup sum of your test is suddenly drastically reduced. Yes, and I think all of those containers are now running. I don't know if it's DC specifically, but it's in the Google Cloud in Europe where they're doing it. Yeah, I'm not sure if Container Engine would be the right tool for the job. Container Engine is a fairly new tool still. Um, I think it, it was released in November last year. 
So it's still fairly new uh, as a Google Cloud offering, uh, but stable for production. Like we're using it, it's working. Out of curiosity, and it, the Rancid Sense doesn't matter, but do they charge a premium for the GCE service on top of their normal cloud stuff? Or is it as simple as I just want GCE at the same price as the normal nodes? They just dedicate it differently. Um, or up don't to you know? five it's VMs, okay. Up to five VMs, they don't charge you for GCE. Uh, over five, they've got a cost, but it's negligible. It's something like a, a few cents per day. Okay, just like the management fee. Yeah. Uh, the, so it's like, no, I was just curious because I don't know what the Amazon pricing is, but they tend to do that. It's always like EC2 plus whatever the value of said service is on top. No, it's basically the cost, the same cost as just the raw VMs that you're using underneath it. Yeah, that's pretty convenient. So, Kevin, if somebody wants to get started, if we didn't scare them off, if we actually excited them a bit about Kubernetes, um, how can I know we've said they can use it without using Google Cloud, but I guess that's probably the easiest way to get started. How, how would what does it the path look like for somebody? I mean, you just went through this, started going down this path a few weeks ago. Yeah, I would definitely say hosting it on uh, on Google is just the easiest way, lowest barrier to entry, just to get started if you want to play with it. Um, so, if you go to Google Cloud Platform, you can start up a project there. Uh, your first project, you get a $300 credit on Google. So you can go play around with stuff for uh, $300 or 60 days. And that, that gives you plenty of time to play with it. Um, so that, that's a good place to get started. Then they've got some great tutorials there as well. If you want to go and host a, a WordPress site, um, they've, they've got a kind of a how to go about that. Uh, if you're doing Node.js, they've got a good Node.js tutorial for just getting Node.js deployed. Uh, the documentation is really good. So kubernetes.io, uh, you'll find a link across there to all the documentation, and it's really extensive and lots of very good examples. In fact, what I ended up doing a lot of cases is just going to the documentation, copying the example, and then just going and going through the keys and values and changing it to what I needed. Uh, so very easy to just understand what what's happening once you understand the kind of higher level principles of, of it and uh, get stuff deployed there. So perhaps a, a, a good place to just get to grips with the, the higher level concepts is to watch that video uh, of those Raspberry Pi, just the demo with Raspberry Pi's as they deploy some pods and then just pull the wires around and see how things redistribute. Yeah, I must say after two cents to that, if you're not keen on deploying to GCE and you want to try it somewhere else, even your own bare metal, uh, CoreOS is yep. a fantastic base OS for it. They have great support for Kubernetes. It's not shipped out the box, uh, but the, the their documentation shows it's like two things to start up uh, the kubelet uh, and the master, and you're off to the races. You can get going. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there's a cloud launch button for CoreOS with Kubernetes somewhere that you can just click a button and launch a cluster onto Amazon with it. I think with the CloudFormation stuff, they do have tons of different setups that you can use. Yeah. All very easily customized. Three nodes, five nodes, seven nodes, different ETCD setups. They've done a ton of stuff to just tear down the barriers everywhere. Yeah, so, so getting started, you don't have to use Google if you don't trust them with all of your info, even though they probably have it already anyway. Um, <laughs> so if you want to go play with it on Amazon, just go find a launch button. I'm, I'm sure that I saw it on CoreOS's website somewhere. We'll find it for the show notes. Yeah. yeah and then also on the Kubernetes I website, they also have like a little hello world. And then they've got a great video from Brendan Burns, who's one of the guys that started yeah. the Kubernetes project. I saw that video sometime last year and it was just amazing. Yeah. That's also a video that, um, Introduced a lot of the high-level concepts and everything just made a lot more sense after watching that video. Is there anything important we missed? I mean, I guess for the listeners, we throw a lot of big words, almost sound jargony. Kubernetes has a lot of moving parts, uh, but I almost want to say fear not. They all have a very clearly defined role and a place they fit in. And if you ever try... If you ever get something working on Kubernetes, then try and do it with raw Docker, and then quickly you'll realize why it's such a big, impressive project that does so much. Yeah, absolutely. 
I wouldn't want to try and do this without an orchestration tool like Kubernetes. And yeah, as, as we've mentioned, there are others. I know there's Docker Swarm and Mesos uh, that, that are also gaining a lot of popularity, but I don't know. Google's experience just shines through with this. Yeah, I have to agree. I have to agree. Yeah, Paul, thanks, Kevin. That was that was great. Um, it's nice to hear this. Actually, like you know, it leaves the the projectors at a at a meetup, <laughs> the slide decks or the chats at Code and Coffee. Somebody actually took this live. Um, kudos yeah. for that, and to be able to share that. I mean, there was no real horror stories here, other than getting your Redis data deployed, uh, replicated across. If that was the only pain of switching clouds, I mean, you've just demystified that it's completely possible to jump between cloud providers. Yeah, look, it, it meant two or three hours of downtime, um, but do that on a Saturday when no one's using the app, schedule it and let the users know well in advance. Uh, just to follow the good practices. And if, you've just, if you're well prepared beforehand, it's, it's definitely not a scary jump. And uh, day one with the, we, we've been through full business day with this running and it's perfect. Uh, I must say, we was probably add this international audience. That's why it's a full business day on Human Rights Day. Yes. <laughs> In fact, then I was, think so. uh, we saw some of our highest uh, throughput uh, I've ever seen going through this with our lowest latencies. And that all just comes down to good configuration of uh, Nginx, good load balancing internally in Kubernetes. Uh, you know, we've got very low request queue times before things get handled by Rails. All in all, I'm extremely happy with everything that I've seen so far here. No, no. Congratulations to you and the rest of the team that helped pull this off. Thanks. Yeah, it was a good, um, good team that got this going. Any any picks to, to close us off with? Well, I think I've done a bit of a explosion this whole episode, just pointing to different things. Um, yeah, that is that is true. Yeah, so I've exhausted my picks throughout the episode already. <laughs> no, that's that's perfect. I mean, I was going to pick this Brendan Burns video, and then I saw it's on the new Kubernetes homepage. So yeah, like, I, 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 I think that's actually where I saw it. <laughs> it was through the Kubernetes homepage. But it's really cool. I'll see if we can find maybe one or two other videos to help people demystify. All right. Um, yeah, thanks. That's fantastic. Um, cool. cool. Then just some housekeeping, uh, dear listeners. We have a bunch of old episodes that used to be hosted on a different podcast provider. They are on SoundCloud. We're going to start flipping the public switch on them one by one every week on a Friday. Uh, hopefully, we've got a big enough buffer that they don't show up in your podcast apps, but do let us know if this is annoyance. We just want the full catalog in one place. And other than that, please uh, rate us in iTunes and leave a comment there. Uh, we're at ZA Dev Chat on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, wherever you get your fix. And uh, thanks for listening. See you guys next week. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Bye.